0: Well, Lord Jesus Christ taught us an important lesson of faith in Luke chapter 17, verse 6, which I'm simply going to quote here, where he taught us that um, if we, his people, have faith like a grain of mustard seed, then we can say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted into the ocean, and it will obey us. Of course, Jesus wasn't being literal in that statement, and there were similar statements about mountains and so forth about the, the importance of faith but the reality of what he teaches is true and that is um, it's not the strength of our faith it's not the, the visible public display of our faith that's important it's, it's simple but real faith even if it's small that makes a difference and that is a, a lesson that God's people and we continue to have to learn generation after generation because we tend to think that it's the it's the, the big things the, the strong things the, the things that are that have notoriety and publicity, that that get jobs, uh, jo- the Lord's work done, and and in reality, Jesus says, you know, it's just the it's just the people who have a simple but small faith who accomplished mighty tasks in my name, and you look around uh, across the panorama of of the Bible, and you realize the people that God chose to do His work were not the most popular, not the most powerful. Certainly, Jesus didn't choose uh, twelve of the most popular, powerful people. They they weren't. Um, that tells us that. What God uses is people who have a simple but real faith. And that it makes a difference, not just in this life, but in eternity. And I believe when you come to the very first story of, of Samuel, we see an example and an illustration of what Jesus taught us. And that is um, how a simple, small faith impacts eternity. Um, which leads us to the very opening story of, of this, this book and to a woman that kind of rises out of obscurity um, to teach us a lesson of faith, a woman who is, is barren by the name of, of Hannah. And um, that's how the, the book opens up, is with a focus on this, this barren woman. The most, in many respects, unexpected places to find um, someone that God would use to turn around history, at least in the direction that it was moving. Now, a word about... Um, how I'm going to approach this story, for me, in my opinion, I think there's something of the power of the story that's lost if you don't talk about the whole story. Um, And this story unit begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and extends into chapter 2, which means it's rather long, which means we're going to summarize lots of it, because I think you miss the power of it. If we stop halfway through, it's like telling your kids the story of the three pigs, you know, and getting to the part about the, and the wolf says, you know, I'll huff and I'll pluff and I'll puff and I'll blow, and then stopping the book and saying, all right, kids, we'll pick up here tomorrow. Uh, what happens to the three pigs in the house? Well, the story, I think, is meant to be told in its entirety, so I'm going to attempt to do it. Um, in addition to the fact that um, what el- the, the other thing that makes a story powerful is to look at how it contrasts with its, its background and where it's set in history almost like a diamond set against a black cloth will bring out the, the beauty and brilliance of a, a diamond. So the beauty of the story and the faith of this simple woman uh, is brought out when you put her against the, the contextual history of, of when she lives. And so permit me for a moment to paint a rather back, um, backdrop, a dark backdrop to her life because I think it will show just how much more um, wonderful this simple but real faith is. The story of 1st Samuel 1 through 2.10, the story of Hannah, we'll just call it Hannah's story, is set um, at the end of the time of, of the judges. Um, after uh, Moses brought the people into the land, there was a series of deliverers. They were provincial deliverers. They weren't national heroes, but provincial. They would deliver God's people, different tribes from, from different enemies and so forth, and they were called judges. And that extends for a, a couple of centuries um, and this story of Hannah is at the very end of that story of the time of the judges and introduces us to the time of kings. So um, her story is in many respects a transition story. But what you need to know is at the end of the time of the judges, Israel finds itself experiencing some of the most darkest points of, of, of Israel's history. Um, in other words, to understand the background of her story in First Samuel 1, you have to almost go back and read the last three chapters of the book of Judges. And if you read them, you find that they are vivid, they are graphic, and they are deeply disturbing. So let me summarize them for you with that preface made. Um, In chapter 19 of Judges, right around the time in which Hannah lived, we find that there is a man, a Levite, a Jewish man, who's um, traveling with his wife, a concubine. And they have no place to stay, and they they take refuge in a man's house in in the small town of Gibeah. And there at night, a group of Jewish men come around the, the, the house, and they demand for him to come out but he doesn't. Instead, the concubine, or wife, is given to these Jewish men, and I don't know how else to describe it, but basically she's raped over and over again by this group of men, and then she dies in the morning, Now, that's sick, I understand, but it's chapter 19 of Judges. Well, the husband of this murdered and raped wife gets up the next morning and finds her dead, and he is angered, as any husband would be, And so he does, in many respects, the unthinkable, but he does it to get the attention of God's people. And he takes the body of his wife and he cuts it into 12 pieces. Uh, That's chapter 20. And he distributes it through the land of Israel. And it gets the attention of the tribes of Israel and they rally. And what ensues out of this terrible event, gruesome event, is a civil war a civil war that's um, so bad that after three days of fighting, the 11 tribes of Israel come against one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, and they fight. And after three days of battle, if I did my math correctly, over 65,000 men die. That's That's a lot of men to die in three days. I don't know how many we've lost in the war with Iraq and Afghanistan up to this point, but nothing near that. And this happened in three days. And the bloodshed was so intense... That the people of Israel were worried that the tribe of Benjamin would be completely wiped out. So, chapter 21, the last chapter of Judges, records how they figure out a way in which to repopulate the 12th tribe of Israel. It's not good to have 12 minus 1. And that the the text ends, the book of Judges ends with this rather sobering statement. This is where the people of God are. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. In other words, everybody did whatever they wanted. So the way the book of Judges ends and the context in which we find Hannah is um, Israel is in moral chaos. That's a roundabout way of saying Israel is in moral chaos. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and you read, not only is are the people in moral chaos, but you realize the sacred institution entrusted with the worship of Yahweh is also in ruins. That is, it has been corrupted by a group of self-serving priests who sleep with women at the temple and also exploit the people at the temple. So the point to be made in terms of the backdrop is that Israel during this story is in, is in a place of of moral and spiritual ruin. But God is going to do, he never leaves his people. He's always at work even when it looks like there's There's no sign of him around, and he is at work uh, in this dark place turning things around. And he's going to do it in the most unlikely of people. Not a political figure, not a mighty warrior, not a king, but a barren, childless woman. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're introduced to her story. There was a certain man of... Ramathaim Zophim, in the, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Two wives, one that has children, and the sense of the rest of the chapter, she had many children, and then there's Hannah who has no children. She's childless. She has um, a defect that keeps her from being able to have babies of her own. Now, that kind of introduces you to a time of, of pain and a context of pain. What emerges in the first half of the chapter of chapter one is a woman who is in, is in deep anguish. Um, the d- anguish, of course, that begins with a sense of her own defectiveness inability to have children. Now, I know as, as men, we probably don't fully understand that. Um, um, I've known enough women who weren't able to have children, some of them in, in my extended family. And um, I've known, I can put myself in place and, and know that um, women are hardwired with maternal instincts. Um, that is, there is a sense in which their purpose is tied to having children and to have that short-circuited would create a sense of, of unworthiness. Um, perhaps a sense like you you were less than other people who could have children, especially in a, in a patriarchal society like this was, um, who believed, as we still believe, that g- children are a gift from the Lord, they are a blessing of the Lord, that part of the mandate in humanity is to be fruitful and multiply and here she is in a place where she can't do it. That's the pain that she's in and, and I think some of us can imagine, at least put ourselves in a place, there are people who do experience that even in our time and it's a, it's a troubling thing and it in that time, it would have been um, considered disgraceful. But what's important to recognize is that this defect in her ability to have children and not have babies is not an accident. In verses 5 and 6, two times we're told that it was the Lord who closed her womb. It was the Lord who took away her ability or gave her the de- defect that she couldn't have children, the Lord. That is Um, this book has a strong sense of the providence of God that there are no accidents um, in defects and so forth, that there is indeed a a purpose for her having her womb closed. And just got to stop right there and just um, reflect on that for a second. We tend to think um, of things like infertility in one dimension. That is, we look at the immediate causes and, I don't know, blame cell phones in pockets or something in the water or hormone imbalances or things that are put into the meat. And we look at those immediate causes and think, well, that's the reason perhaps that there's infertility. Um, and we don't have the eyes of faith to see behind those immediate causes and recognize that there's still a hand of providence behind and in those things accomplishing purposes. And part of our job as believers to see things is the way the Bible sees things is to get beyond the immediate causes and recognize that God's hand is there to fight against the be- belief that everything is just a mere product of material causes and to press into faith and recognize that behind those material causes is the hand of a loving gracious and purposeful God who doesn't waste pain and he's not wasting her, c- her closed womb but that doesn't deny the fact that she is in pain over the over the anguish of not being able to have children but you go on in the story, and you recognize that her pain of her own defectiveness is compounded or magnified by the fact that she is constantly verbally abused, attacked, provoked, um, in vicious ways by wife number two. As a side note, the Bible does not speak favorably of, of pagan, or paganism, uh, what am I thinking of? Polygamy. Um, at best, it's tolerable, but most of the time, it's intolerable. Uh, so wife number two, every time that they they would, the family, Elkander, the husband and two wives and and, uh, Penita and her children would go up to worship the Lord, um, she would constantly provoke her. That's what we see in verse six, and it says that her rival used to provoke her uh, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So in addition to the physical defect, you have somebody constantly uh, making fun, provoking, um, grievously, trying to irritate and vex. So you have this other party in there trying to make it worse for you. Um, and it didn't just go on for a short period of time. We're told in verse 7 that it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and could not eat. So and you can imagine how that goes. People know how to push each other's buttons, right? Watch our kids. My kids know how to push each other's buttons. And a uh, husband's wife, she know what button to push if you want to irritate her. And here are these two women, one who has lots of children, one who has none. But in the story, which I won't read now, the husband seems to love the barren wife more. So there's probably jealousy issues, and you can imagine conversations of, of Panina's little children going, why doesn't Miss Hannah have children? Well, I don't know what the reply would be It would be provocative, but something along the lines, well... You know, she's uh she maybe did something wrong that the doesn't like Lord doesn't like her. Or you can imagine a conversation. Little Matthew has colic. I wonder how to deal with that. Hannah, you have an oh, that's right, you don't have kids. Uh, whatever the provocation was, and those are mild. The fact of the matter is this woman was in her business constantly reminding her she was barren and provoking her to anger. And there's all kinds of emotion words that are used like vexed, irritation and so forth, grievously provoking her to, to be upset. Um over a long period of time, years. So that's kind of the context of pain. Now, now, let me just pause here, and let's let's reflect on how we act in the face of injustice oftentimes. Many of us have patterned responses that we learned from uh, childhood. And we would respond to pain and injustice in particular ways that we might call flesh responses. Uh, one way to respond to to pain and injustice, which... Hannah could have done, is to somehow escape it, run away from it, leave her husband, perhaps escape it through some pleasurable distraction, be it lawful or unlawful. People do that today when there's pain and injustice, often turn to alcohol or drugs or pornography or a racy novel or all kinds of different distractions, some noble, some not so noble to get away from the pain of injustice. Uh, another patterned response, which oftentimes people do, is they, they tend to suppress, deny, bury it, pretend it doesn't exist, which is just an, a form of lying to yourself. Or another, if you happen to be a type A, very strong personality with a lot of s- sense of personal pride, um, you probably are a person who responds to injustice and pain by, by, um, by reacting, retaliating. Now, there's something satisfying about about launching a zinger at somebody who's just hurt you and knowing that it hurt them back. But there's a sense of guilt, and you know this, whenever you take that approach of trying to vindicate or take revenge yourself for an injustice caused against you. Now, those typically are what we might call flesh responses in the face of pain and injustice. And what I want you to notice is that Hannah does not Um, take any of those paths. She rather chooses a faith path of dealing with injustice and dealing with pain and dealing with her own defects. That is, she turns and she brings her pain and she brings the injustice and the situation and she lays it before the Lord. And here we're given an insight into her plea, her, her, um, her prayer to the Lord. Apparently, one evening, or when they had eaten, she had gotten to the point where she'd had an absolutely enough. That's why, and it says, verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. She got up, couldn't handle it anymore. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat near doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Um, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That's He will be a Nazarite, col- holy and completely devoted to the Lord's work. So here she is coming to the Lord in her pain and injustice and she, she lays it all out to him. She doesn't take things into her own hands but rather brings them to the hands of the only one who can take away her shame. That's, she's dealing with this in a sense of, of faith. She is pleading with the Lord. And her plea involves a vow that if, if you will give me a son and take away my reproach, then I will offer him back to you um, for the duration of his life if you will Give me a son. She deals with her, 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 her the, this dark place in her life. If the people of Israel are in darkness, well, her, her life is, uh, could be categorized or described by darkness in some sense of pain and injustice over a long period of time. But she deals with it with a simple but real faith in just bringing it to the Lord and offering it to him and laying him at his feet. Now, I know many of us, are we're all familiar with the idea of prayer. And I think for many years, I thought of prayer as a a deed, a, a religious act that you had to do. But you know, the truth of the matter is that prayer is simply an automatic expression of what you believe. And bottom line, where there is no prayer, there's no faith. Because when we really believe, and I'm not talking about a stated faith here, I'm talking about a heart of faith inside the cortex of your being that believes God is personal that he cares, that he listens to believe the truth of Psalm 113, which um, is a quotation of this story, that though our Lord is seated on high, he bends far low to raise the poor from the dust and to lift up the needy from the ash heap, to believe that he's personal, he listens, he cares, he's gracious, he's merciful, and he cares about a barren woman crying out in isolation at a temple door. Now, where that that belief uh, enters in, even if it's a small one, it will begin to cry out and say, okay, Lord, do you see my situation? Do you see my situation? Give me a son. You've got to pause here for one more second and recognize that just because God has providentially brought something into your life like a defect doesn't mean that you can't pray that it be changed. The Lord closed her womb, and now she's begging God to open it again. She's praying for change. There are views of of providence which would leave us passive, but that's not what she does. She pleads with the Lord, will you change the situation and give me a son? Now, the text goes on to say that the Lord listened to her. A barren woman, um, her prayer, there's nothing particularly exciting or... um, Eloquent about her prayer, just as a prayer, a petition. And it says that the Lord granted her petition, and she conceived, and she bore a son, and she named that little son Sam, or Samuel, or Sammy, who knows what they call him in Hebrew. She has this little, little boy, so the Lord answers her prayer, the simple prayer of faith of this barren woman, and it starts to change the course of events in Israeli um, history. This little boy is born named Samuel, after which both of these books are named. Now, in one sense, you could stop the story here. Wow, God gave a, a um, answer to prayer, and so, therefore, it's a nice, tidy little package. But um, there's more to the challenge and more to the story than that, because if you remember, in her plea, she made a vow to the Lord that if you give me a son then I will give him back to you. And that, of course, I think, it, just knowing human humanity, knowing myself, um, that had to be indeed a bigger challenge of faith than simply praying the prayer, Lord, give me a son. She'd waited her whole life for a moment. God grants the moment. She has a little baby named Samuel. And now she knows, based upon the vow that she's made to the Lord, that she needs to honor that vow. And there's a lot in the Old Testament that talks about fulfilling your vows, following through on what you say. They took it seriously. So for her, she had a decision to make. Would she take her little bundle of treasure and give it to the Lord, surrender it, or not? I mean, put yourself in the situation. She had a question to answer. Am I going to follow through and and surrender my child back to the Lord, as I said I would do. What, what would you do? What would I do? Well, the story goes on to tell us that, that indeed, when the child was weaned, and uh, scholars say that was somewhere between three and four years old, so when he was a little bit older than a toddler, um, that Elkanah, the husband, and Hannah honored their vow to the Lord, and they took this little boy up to the temple. Verse 25 is where we pick it up his faith's surrender in the middle of verse 25 we read that and they brought the the child to Eli and she said oh my lord as you live my lord I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the lord for this child I prayed and the lord has granted me my petition that I made to him therefore I have lent him to the lord as long as he lives he is lent to the lord and he referring to Samuel worship the lord there So she brings her three, four-year-old little boy and she, in effect, her and her husband, surrender him to this temple staff. Um, it's a, a picture of the woman who's the receiver of a gift giving it back to the Lord, which is, is, a, is an amazing picture of what worship is about. Is that we don't give until we first receive we can't really love God until we recognize that he loved us first. And when that love and when the grace takes hold of one's heart and you recognize just how immense and gracious the Lord is, then it compels one to then be generous in return and offer back to God. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing picture of worship. Um, now, as I said, I've read this story a lot of times. I've read it a lot before I was a father, and I've read it a lot after I've become a father. And um, it astounded me, her level of faith in giving up her child before I was a dad, but but now having been a dad, um, it astounds me even more, Um, especially when one takes into perspective the fact that they are giving their three-, four-year-old plus-size toddler to a corrupt place. Imagine a, 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 a bad church. Imagine a church that, where, where sexual abuse is, is rampant. A church where fiscal corruption is rampant and dropping your three-year-old off there. But it's important to recognize that Hannah wasn't entrusting her child to men. She was entrusting her child to the Lord. Huge difference between those two things. Now, you might say to me at this point, there's there's no way I could do that. I could not do that. I could not trust the Lord that much. And I don't know that Hannah could when she started either. One of the things we're going to find as we look through this book of Samuel is that um, the writer takes enough time to show us that In any great act of faith, there are always antecedent or uh, previous acts of faith that are smaller. For example, David runs onto the scene in 1 Samuel 17 and fights Goliath as just a small boy. Most of us would look at that and say, I could never do that. However, the writer takes enough of time to tell us that the Lord provided the grace when David was tending sheep to deliver both Lion, not deliver lion, deliver the sheep from both lion and bear. In other words, he had had experiences of God's delivering grace in the past, which were much smaller. The same here. The first act of faith that we read about, at least it's recorded, is that she, she took her pain and the justice and she offered it to the Lord in, 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 in prayer, and she trusted him and asked him that he would change the circumstances, which, of course, he did. When God answers your prayer that way, that increases your sense of faith that he really is there. And if God is gracious and powerful enough to give a baby, then he is certainly gracious and powerful enough to protect that baby and preserve that baby and shepherd that baby in the worst of contexts. That is, faith in many respects, in, as viewed in the Bible, is like walking upstairs. God gives you a simple step to take that seems like a stretch. And, and you take that step of faith and you find out that God delivers that increases your faith, and then he brings you another step, which also seems like a stretch. And when we choose to take the challenge of faith, and we step that step of faith, and we find that God's grace was there, well then, after you've gone up a bunch of steps, you realize you're quite high. There were a whole uh, success, succession of preceding steps, I think, to our faith. He just... Life is a life of continuing to trust the Lord in each and every situation he brings your way. It's like walking upstairs. She got to this point and she was willing to surrender her her, her boy. An act of faith. Faith praying, um, dealing with injustices and pain in the way that God would have us do, pouring it out to him. The whole book of Psalms is about God's people pouring out their experiences and their heart to the Lord in authentic honesty. God wants that from us. He doesn't want pretend language. He wants us to speak our heart to him as she did. But then also to trust when he says surrender. And one of the most difficult things to surrender is your children. And there's these first several chapters of 1 Samuel, powerful contrast of parents and children. And one of the most important things that each of us as parents has to, has to wrestle with, do I really honestly surrender my child's soul to the Lord? She passes the, the faith test. She, she leaves her child, um, Samuel, there in this uh, corrupted temple context. But I want to say how this story ends, because you might expect, this is, this is kind of what we expect of human experience. She, she does her job of surrendering as she said she would do, and then walks away sad, like I can't believe I just did that looking behind little Samuel standing there and just you know, almost regretting that you ever did that, like you did something that you really didn't want to do. Now, I don't doubt that there was a sense of grief in her heart, again, just knowing humanity, that she left behind her three-, four-year-old little treasure. But the story ends with a psalm of praise, with a psalm of worship. That is, I think in the process of her trusting, she discovers something of the way in which God works, and she sees at some level how her faith has impacted history. And what I want to say in terms of this final little segment of her life, is it's not her life, but this story, um, is that when you trust the Lord... And you, you deal with the issues of life by going to him rather than taking it into your own hands. And when you're willing to surrender the things when God says, I want that and I need that and you need to offer it to me and trust me. And of course, all of life is to be entrusted to him. Luckily, he takes it in stages. That faith when it acts never is disappointed. Because when we do act in faith and trust the Lord, we're going to find joy on the other side that we wouldn't have if we didn't trust him. Now, I have talked to person after person in this congregation who has gone through difficult trials with children, with their, with their own um, bodies, gone through dark dark nights of the soul, to quote, quote St. John of the Cross, and they trusted the Lord through those situations. On the, on the other side, they experienced a glory and a joy and a grace in the Lord that they didn't have before, and they, they turn around and say, thank you. I hear that over and over again because It's true. When we're willing to trust the Lord with our lives and the challenges and the things that he calls us to do, setting aside our fears and surrendering and just saying, okay, I'm going to do what you asked me to do, there is never a disappointment on the other side. It may take a while to realize the joy of it, but it will never disappoint. So we get to this final part. She has is, she is offered her child to this, this corrupted context, and she responds with, my heart exalts in the Lord. Exult is a word that's saying it's overjoyed. My heart explodes with a sense of wonder and gladness. Um, my horn or my, my strength is exalted in the Lord. She erupts with a sense of worship and a praise of the Lord. Now, how in the world can she do that when she leaves behind her little baby? And I think it's because on the other side of her, her, her faith um, and offering... She recognizes something wonderful about the way God works and the way that God works through our lives to impact eternity. That is, this psalm celebrates over and over again, kind of flips back and forth. It celebrates the sovereign grace of God in life. The sovereign grace of God in life. I didn't put all of this on the slides, but... She can say in verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She's ascribing to him and she's affirming his sovereignty. But then she goes on to talk about the way in which God's sovereign grace works. And that it, it, it is not attracted to the strong or the arrogant or the proud or the popular. But rather, she's able to say, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And then she contrasts those who are high to those who are low. She says, the, uh, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven talking about her own life. But she who has many children is forlorn. There's this great reversal. The the strong is made weak and the weak is made strong. The the, the rich is made poor and the poor is made rich. The, 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 those who are filled will be emptied and those who are emptied will be filled. And she continues the contrast in verse 8. This is, this, is refle- this is quoted in Psalm 113. Someone was reflecting on her life and wrote a psalm as a result of of what God did to this barren woman where he says, she says, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And as God exalts those of humble faith, she recognizes that this is how God works. This is how his kingdom comes. This is how change is brought in, in an otherwise dark circumstance. And I believe that that's not the exception. That's the norm. That God chooses to do his work, his miracles, Not through the strong and the arrogant, but rather through those who are weak and humble, barren women. Those who don't have formal education. Not that formal education is a bad thing. But she understands that that's how God's worked. A barren woman in a patriarchal society offers up a prayer in faith. And out of that prayer comes a baby. And out of that baby comes a surrender. And out of that surrender comes a joy of recognizing That because of her simple but real faith, in some respects, history has changed. And that God works miracles through the weak and the frail. And we can say that all we want, but it's not until we believe it that we'll be freed to be God's people and stop thinking we're inadequate because we're weak. Because our adequacy comes not from the fact that we're powerful, well-known, or well-spoken, but our, our adequacy comes from the fact that we trust in the living God, period. That's how God works and does his work. And you can't stop short of the very last verse of her psalm because it leads us in a direction that I just find, I don't know, astounding. Look at the final verse, verse 10. This is of her her celebration and rejoicing over who God is. She writes, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. I just read that verse and she was given either by reflection or revelation a peek into the future. And how her little tiny faith would impact the future. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. She looks forward and sees a time in which God will judge the living and the dead, everyone who has lived at the ends of the earth. And then she connects that to a king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So you have blended together in this one verse the idea of kingship, king, power, exaltation, the anointed one, which is just a, the Hebrew word of Messiah, who will judge the ends of the earth. And no king in Israelite history ever fulfilled that. Not Saul, not David, not Hezekiah, not Josiah. In other words, what she was looking forward to is what we've come to know as none other than the son of David who sits on the throne, who alone will judge the living and the dead. That is Jesus. Who lives out this psalm, that he was born to obscure parents in a feeding trough, ran for his life, at least his parents ran for his life as refugees down to Egypt, a man of sorrows, a man of grief, a man before whom people would wag their heads and say, really? A man who would suffer and a man who would bear sins, a man who would die on a cross, rejected and despised. But it's through the weak, the rejected, the despised, that God changes the world. Because the one that the builders rejected, the king, became God's cornerstone. He became the foundation of God's kingdom, before whom we're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That he will be the one who resolves unresolved differences who will sort things out at the end of history and judgment. She's looking forward and seeing something so much bigger than her own life and bigger than her own child. Now, think about this for a moment. Her simple prayer of faith that led to a baby that led to a rather amazing surrender in faith um, led to the rising of a great prophet by the name of Samuel who would anoint King David, the kingmaker who was the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that that way, this simple barren woman in her faith made a difference for eternity. And it hasn't changed. You and I have no idea how simple acts of faith when we trust God either expressing it in our prayers and petitions or in the surrendering the things that that are hard for us, trusting him with it, how those things will impact the ocean of God's eternity in the future. We're singing her songs. We read her stories. Not because she was great, but because she had a simple but real faith. God doesn't care how powerful you are. He cares whether you trust him or not. And if we can live out this simple faith day in and day out and be willing to step up the next stair and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust there's joy on the other side, and I don't know how this is all going to work itself out, but I trust that somehow my faith in the present reality is going to impact eternity because you're gracious. I think that's part of what her, her story is to teach us and give us strength and hope Because it's not the the strong and the powerful that God's grace changes the world through. It's it's those who simply and humbly trust him with everything. So do you trust him? Do you trust him with your children? Is there something that you have been holding back that you know he is saying, you need to surrender this to me in faith? It might be something sinful, or it might be something that you treasure, that you know he wants you to surrender to him. Even if it's just a spiritual relinquishing of life. I guarantee you, faith, if it's real and simple, and it acts in trust, will not be disappointed at the end story speaks to me I hope it does to you as well and let me just ask you in, in kind of closing this if, if you're with somebody if you're not we you just um, maybe just lay a hand on them and just pray that God would grant them simple but real faith um, that's it just, just pray that God would grant us this kind of faith in our church and in our families and then we'll sing a couple songs feel free to pray out loud.